So we're in Galatians chapter 5 and 6. Are you there? Look at Galatians chapters 5 and 6 with me. Last week we've talked about uh, who will guide us in our freedom into a place of flourishing. We saw how Jesus Christ set us free. If you look back in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. This was actually the contested point in Galatia. What does freedom mean? And there, was, there were people there, as Paul goes on, he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there were people who were saying, Well, Christ set us free, but here's all this other stuff that we need to be yoked back under in order to, to please God, in order to get more of the Spirit, in order to live the life that Jesus wants for us. And Paul's working against that on the one hand. But he's also aware of another danger. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, revisiting that same idea. You were called to freedom... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And as we talked about last two Sundays ago, uh, we've all seen people who come into a sense of freedom, whether that's uh, freedom from parental oversight or the freedom that money can bring, and they make a lot of bad decisions in that space. So we need somebody to guide us, guide us in our freedom into the, the place that we imagine our freedom will take us, which is flourishing. And so we know, as we talked about two Sundays ago, that only the Spirit, only the Spirit of the one free man, right? there's only been one truly free person, one person born outside the cages, one person lived outside the cages, one person who can set us free and can teach us how to live free, and it's His Spirit that Paul says we need to follow. We need to follow the Spirit of the one free man. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus will lead us. We we live because of the Spirit. Paul said earlier, he says, you you live because of the Spirit. And a big part of his point here is that now, if we live because of the Spirit, right, we need to live by the Spirit. We need to keep connected to the Spirit of Jesus for our freedom, for our new life in Christ, to lead to the flourishing that we would love to see it take us to. And so he says here, he says, we live by the Spirit, we need to pay attention to the Spirit. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. And so, the big question this morning for us is, where does Holy Spirit lead? Where does Holy Spirit lead us? This is such an important question. It's sort of at this point that most of our theologies and most of our understandings of the Christian life just sort of uh, evaporates into an ellipsis. Now, dot, dot, dot. Does, does the Spirit just lead us into anywhere, into anywhere that uh, then we define by, well, it's, it feels right to me. I just feel the Spirit leading me this way. I feel like I ought to go this direction. It, it seems like, at least in, in our culture, right, the Holy Spirit is the person of God most easily put to use by our individualistic narcissisms. We've all probably, if you've been in a church or you've been in a Christian faith for any number of years, you've probably seen somebody who at some point said, I'm going to go do something that's completely opposed to the revealed will of God in Scripture, but I just feel the Spirit leading me to this. I just, I just feel like I should break this covenant vow with my spouse because I feel the Spirit leading me in love to this other person. We've seen this kind of gross abuse of the idea of this leading of the Spirit. Now, we tend to see most clearly how the Spirit leads 
or how, pe- how the Spirit gets blamed for leading people into sin. But you remember that what Paul's actually dealing with here is, is people blaming the Spirit for leading Christians back into religiosity. You remember when we looked at the works of the flesh here in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, how things like idolatry, like bowing down to statues, and sorcery, consulting with witches and demons and so forth, is right before enmity, which just, just means having bad feelings towards somebody else, and strife, which many of us experience much more commonly than we do sorcery. He's mixing up these works of the flesh, saying we need to be careful here. We need to be careful at this place in our journey when we think about where is the Holy Spirit leading us? Where is the Holy Spirit leading us? And the Holy Spirit is leading us. Look with me at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Holy Spirit is leading us to concern for one another. Chapter 6, verse 2. Let's bear one another's burdens. When we keep in step with the Spirit, the Spirit leads us to one another. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Where's Holy Spirit leading us? To one another, to the household of faith. And then chapter 6, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. The Holy Spirit is leading us. When we pay attention to the Spirit, where does the Spirit go? To building up the beautiful new creation community of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is interested in. That's where the Spirit is leading. This echoes what Jesus said. Do you remember Jesus? The night He was betrayed, the Lord's Supper in John 13. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You remember that part? You love one another. By this, this is how all people are going to know that you're my disciple if you have love for one another. So let me just elevate here as we begin. The main point that I'm making is that the Spirit has priorities. This is maybe obvious, but I want to emphasize it. The Spirit has priorities, and the Spirit's priority is the church. The Spirit of God's priority is us. It's this. The Spirit's priority is the church, and this is so important. As Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, he says, If you are eager to see manifestations of the Spirit, then strive to excel in building up the body because that's where the Spirit is. That's what the Spirit is interested in doing. Now we know that, uh, that God's heart is for right, the, the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea, for all families of the world to be blessed, for everybody to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, for grace to extend to all people and increase thanksgiving for His honor and glory. That's, what God, that's God's heart, right? But if the lamp through which all that shines is cracked or clouded, people aren't going to see the shining of the light. Right, If that love of God has not shaped and molded us into a certain image, the world's not going to, the world's not going to see it. That grace and love of Christ is not going to become visible in this world other than through us. Not because we think we're so important. We don't most of the time. But this is what, in God's wisdom, in His humor, <laughs> in His irony, He has picked through which to show the glory of God and to call people to Jesus. So, we come now to talk about, finally, to actually talk about the beautiful new creation community. We've referred to it for the last many months as what Paul is defending, 
But now we're actually going to talk a little bit about what it is. The new creation community, when we follow the Spirit, the Spirit is leading us, first of all, to building a culture of grace. So look with me again at verse 26 of chapter 5, and we're going to read into chapter 6. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Spirit is leading us to be a culture of grace. That's, that's what makes the new creation community so beautiful, is the presence of the grace of God. Now I want to just point out a couple of things here in these few verses that I think are really helpful in, in understanding what this means to be a culture of grace. Look, look who's in this place. Look who's here, right? Uh, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, two kinds of people are in this, in this place, right? Those who are caught in transgressions and those who are spiritual. Are you spiritual? Would you say, how would you rank yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 in spirituality, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about spiritual as some sort of hierarchy. Like, well, I'm not very spiritual, and I'm kind of spiritual on Sundays, and then I'm super spiritual. What does spiritual mean? It means what he just got done saying in chapter 525. Are you paying attention to the Spirit? Nobody gets to be a spiritual person. Being a spiritual person just means you're paying attention to the Spirit. You're paying attention to where the Spirit is leading. And if you're paying attention to the Spirit, where does the Spirit lead? The Spirit's going to lead you to those who are caught in transgressions. Again, tethering us to the work of God in this world, to those who need Jesus. Not just turning us loose to whatever we feel we want to do that we can blame on the Spirit. The Spirit is leading us to those who are caught in transgressions. And caught in transgressions sounds like a super biblical kind of like boring kind of phrase, but it's actually super, it's a really visual, visceral expression. It's it's that image uh, that Jesus uses to talk about the one sheep that wasn't in the pen at the end of the day. When the 99 were there and the one wasn't. And where was the one? The one was off the path. It had transgressed and it was stuck. It was stuck and lost. It was lost and stuck. And this is the person here who needs those who are following the Spirit. The Spirit is going to lead them to go find that lost sheep. The Spirit of Jesus is going to lead them to find this lost sheep. And when it says that this person is caught in a transgression, it means that they're not gonna they're not gonna get free, they're not gonna escape without us. You know, it's so easy to look at people and just say, look, just do this, just start doing this stuff. But people can get caught in places that they can't get out of by themselves, which is why Paul by the Spirit is saying, This is your job, you who are listening to the Spirit, go get them. Go help them out. This is what we're here to do. And I love, notice this too, how he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Like you don't, we don't get to uh, decide who gets the, the, the work of the church, who we get to care for, what transgressions are going to be the ones we focus on. If anyone's caught in any transgression. Just before that, in verse 26, did you notice this? He said, let, let us not become conceited. So he kind of runs through sort of a, a, a hierarchy in, in 
a social order. Conceited people think that they're better than everybody else, right? Uh, or provoking one another, envying one another. Envy, envious people think that they're not as good as other people, that other people have it better. And then provoking people are trying to figure that out, right? They're sort of pushing each other in the chest until, they, until one of them gets to be conceited and the other one gets to be envious. But what he says here, he says, set that whole bunch of nonsense aside. Now, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this is the opposite of the social order struggle. This is, if we're following the Spirit, who needs help? So that's who's here in this culture of grace. And here's what, what happens. He says, uh, you who are spiritual should restore him. And in verse 2 he says, bear one another's burdens. So the goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. It's so interesting. Those of you who are a little bit more nerdy, have been around Fellowship Bible Church for a while, Ephesians chapter 4 is kind of like a Magna Carta passage for the church. In there, Paul says, uh, what is the point of the church, which is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word equip is this word restore. That word equip is this word restore, and it comes from an image, uh, it comes from an image of fishermen in the Gospels whose nets got broken because they were overused or they were old or whatever, they, they, and they needed to be mended. They were mended. And now the church's job is to equip them. And here the church's job is to restore one another, to get them back and get them ready. They were lost and they were stuck. Now we want to bring them back and get them ready. Now that's, if you've ever tried to do that, if you've ever prayed about trying to do that, if you've thought about praying about trying to do that, you know that that's a hard thing to do. Whatever can lead one of our brothers or sisters astray and get them stuck is going to be a challenge to dislodge and move. Have you ever, have you ever helped move a stuck car? Have you ever put your back into a car that was stuck in the mud and tried to get it out? What happens to your clothes? What happens to your shoes? Right? As soon as you try to help them, as soon as you try to bear their burden, you, you got to get close to them and you're going to get messy. Right? I can't help, you can't help me carry something I'm carrying that's heavy unless we're practically tripping on each other. It's a three-legged race, right? It's, we're right up in each other's business to try to get one another free and restored. You got to get close and it's going to get messy, but that's new creation work. That's where the Spirit, where's the Spirit? God, Jesus, where, where's the Spirit? Spirit is leading you to this, to those who are caught, to those who are burdened. Now, what's it going to be like for them? What's it going to be like? What's the, what's the user experience of the church? What should it be like? I was just talking with somebody this morning about how, um, how, how people have bad experiences at church. Right? Have you ever had a bad experience? Probably most of you have not had a bad experience at church, but maybe some of you have. Right? We've all had a bad experience. But the user experience, the UI, is supposed to be that they did it with a spirit of gentleness. Do you see that? A spirit of gentleness. Now, this is, of course, an immediate reference to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, just a few verses before. But it's also... It's also a huge part, and we're going to see this throughout this morning, it's a huge reflection of, of the way that Jesus ministered. In, in Matthew chapter 11, one of our favorite passages about what Jesus says here, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, 
and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and I will give you rest. I will restore your soul because I am gentle. And you know, Jesus communicated that gentleness in a really sweet way. It wasn't just his like his tone or how he was like, mm, when people told him their problems or something. It says that uh, when he healed people, you know, Jesus, sometimes he did like long distance healings, you know. Uh, I don't know if he made noises with his mouths, but it was stuff like, you know, woo, 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 and, he, and he would heal people from far away. It's not in the text. It might be. Uh, so he, would, he could heal people without having to see them, without having to touch them. But every time the word, almost every time the word touch is used in the Gospels, it's Jesus touching somebody as part of the healing. Touching somebody who had been untouchable. Somebody, touching somebody who had not received any gentleness for a long time. And I think that touch was there, not because Jesus needed it to sort of convey the spark of his power, but to convey to the person who was suffering, um, it's okay. I'm, I'm, gent- I'm gentle. I'm, I'm not judging you. I'm not over you. I'm not criticizing you. I'm not conceited here. I'm, I'm with you in this. He was conveying a spirit of gentleness, which is interesting, exactly opposite what the Pharisees were doing, which the Pharisees are really the kind of the brainchild of the problem in Galatia. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says of the Pharisees, he says, you put burdens on people that you yourself are not even willing to lift a finger to touch to give ease to. So the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. We're to bear one another's burdens, but there's a whole other way to do church and religion where you add burdens. And we're to interact with each other in a spirit of gentleness. There's a whole other way to do it where you say, you got to do it on your own. You figure it out, and then you call me. But that's not the spirit of Jesus. It's really important, though, back in Galatians chapter 6, to recognize that our definition of love is tethered to two truths here. It's tethered to the idea of restoration and of gentleness. You know, there's, there's kind of a little bit of a cultural conversation about what is love. And love here for the Christians, love scripturally is defined by, on the one part, restoration. Right? We don't get to just uh, empathetically validate each other. Like, I hear you and what you say, I, I value, it's val- we don't we just get to validate each other. We, we also have to say, I hear you, I'm not judging you, but where you are, I think you know is not great. We're, we're trying to restore each other, but also we don't get to just, uh, you know, scribe truth and love on the side of our baseball bats and then go around swinging. I mean, a lot of people will think about love as uh, truth in love, which in my experience means you tell people the truth in as rude a manner as you can, and then later when they're upset, you say, I'm just trying to love them. So we want to, our love has to be confined by rest, a hope of restoration and a spirit of gentleness, which again is exactly like Jesus's ministry. He came to restore us. Obviously, that's why he came. He didn't come to be like, you guys are great. Don't worry about a thing. <laughs> and he came to, and he did it in such a way though. He did it in such a way that the most lost and the most hurt and the most broken felt the most welcomed by him. Now, just a few verses later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew points to an old, uh, an old prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And he says, in the prophet Isaiah, talking about Jesus, it says this, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved. I will put my spirit on him. That's the same spirit that Paul's talking about in Galatians that we have. But I'll put my spirit on Jesus. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. A, a bruised reed he will not break. 
a smoldering wick he will not quench, because he's so gentle, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's the spirit of Jesus, and that is the spirit that's on us and in our lives. The spirit of Jesus came to bring people hope and to give this world victory that it cannot find anywhere else. But he did it with such gentleness that he didn't break a bruised blade of grass. You know, sometimes when we deal gently with each other, we feel like it's kind of a dumb strategy, right? We want to be aggressive. We want to be pugilistic. We want to attack. We want to force people to see what we want them to see, and that'll accelerate their transformation. But what it says about Jesus is that he was gentle and it worked. He was gentle and he brought victory. So we can trust in the spirit of Jesus. We can trust the spirit that's been given to us to do the same thing. Right, so this is the culture of grace. Now, where does this culture come from? You know, Paul talks about back in Galatians, in Galatians 5.26, he talks about people who are conceited and provoking one another and envious of one another. And then earlier he talks about how they're biting one another, devouring each other, and then consuming each other. Where do they get a culture where we're biting each other, devouring each other, and destroying each other? Where does that come from? It comes from people who feel insecure, conceited, envious, provoking, trying to figure things out. That insecurity creates a certain kind of culture. So we want a culture of grace. We want a culture of bearing one another's burdens, where those who are spiritual are not lording it over other people, but are looking for those caught in transgressions to to gently restore them. How do we get that kind of culture? Well, that's going to come from our connection, our personal connection with the grace of God ourselves. What Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 5, right before our text, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're only going to create this culture of grace if we know ourselves to be Jesus's and to have joined him on the cross, to know ourselves to have received so much grace. And so the culture of grace is created by graced people. Graced people. And this is what Paul goes on to talk about in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6. You'll notice... uh, he actually starts talking about us back in chapter in verse 1. Did you notice this? He says, uh, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and then bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not as his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So the, the stuff that involves you and the stuff that involves one another is kind of all mixed together. It all works together. It, how we treat one another flows from how we understand ourselves to have been treated by Jesus. And so there's two characteristics of graced people in Galatians 6, 3 to 5. The first is uh, humility. The first is humility. Humility that says, I know my flaws. But this is what he's, he's getting at here in verse 1. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. We have unfortunately observed for for the last many decades, maybe the last few generations, Christian leaders who got to a place where they felt like they were something in, in an area in which they actually made no personal contribution 
And that thinking that they were something there set them up for deception and a fall. And they ended up being caught in transgressions themselves. They ended up getting caught. They thought that they were something. They thought, you know, because of all the books I've written, all the decades of Christian ministry, all the great advice I've given that's changed people's lives, because of all that, I have a closer connection with God. I, I have more power from the Spirit. I have greater insight into this world. And so I'm sort of protected from sin. I, I, I get blessed in everything I do. And if I feel it, boy, I think that's, that's probably God's blessing on it. And we've seen people fall. We've seen Ravi fall like this. Bill Hybels just in, in our neck of the woods fall in a similar way. Some of my theological heroes, John Howard Yoder, these are guys that it seemed like God was using in a powerful way. And you know what? They thought, you know what? That's because I'm so special. That's because I'm making a big contribution in an area where they had they made no contribution. God just used what they were doing at that moment in that place, but they got deceived and then they got caught in transgressions. There's nothing, I'll tell you what, there's nothing right like the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. There's nothing like the cross to remind us what we deserve. We don't deserve special treatment. We don't deserve special privileges. We don't deserve great parking spots, whether it's at church or at the grocery store. We don't deserve to get the parking spot we want. We don't deserve these things. We know what we deserve. We know what we deserve. And so everything else that we enjoy, everything we enjoy is grace. And that humility is really the source of the gentleness and courage of our community that we're willing to restore people, that we're willing to do it with gentleness. And the second thing, in addition to humility, is the characteristic of hard work. Hard work. This is what we see in verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. So on the one hand, humility says, I know my flaws, I know my faults, I know my limits. This says, I know my gifts, I'm here to help. Now you might say, boy, hang on a second. We've been talking in Galatians for ages about how we're not supposed to work, right? Working the law is bad. But working from grace is good. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I, work, I worked harder than all the other apostles, but not me, but the grace of God working in me. God's grace, when we truly get it, it energizes hard work. It energizes us to do what we need to do to build the beautiful new creation community. So Paul says here in verses 4 and 5, he says that we have work to do and we have a load to carry. So let's just talk about that for a moment. What is our work? Our work, as we've already observed, is verse 2. To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the, that means the law that Christ gave us. Here's my law, love one another. And this is the law that is Christ, his own example to lead us and to guide us. The law of Christ is to fulfill, to, to follow the Spirit of Christ toward Christ-like love. And as Paul says already, he says in many places, it, that's the only thing that counts. Back in chapter 5, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So Paul says here in verse 5, he said, let each one test his own work. What comes to mind if I were to say, if, you were gonna, if we were going to have a meeting, maybe we should do this every year. <laughs> you and me, pastor and congregant, and we sat down and we said, all right, I want you to test, we're going to test your work this year. 
what would come to mind? <laughs> what, what would you be like, oh, yeah, I'm ready for this? Or like, oh, no, I never... What? What does it mean to test our work? Well, what we're seeing in this passage is the work, the only work that the Spirit's interested in doing in us. The only, inter- the only work that Jesus is interested in seeing from us is are we moving toward one, one another in love? Are we moving toward one another in love? That movement together and that love connection is the bond, the fabric of this new order that Jesus is bringing into the world, the new creation. What is our work? It's moving toward one another in love. And then he says, uh, we've got a load. We have to bear our own load. What is our load? Well, this seems to be in some kind of contrast with the burden that's shared. There's something that we have that we can share, that we can get help with. And then, as you all know, there is an unshareable thing. There is the unshareable self. We all have this thing that we are. And sometimes that's experienced by people around us as a real gift. And, and sometimes, though, to us, it's a real load. It's something that we maybe wouldn't, we don't love acknowledging. It's things that we think about as being defects, sufferings that we've experienced that we feel like, boy, that really set me back, that really changed my life in a way that I'm, I'm ashamed of or I, I hate. I've got these tendencies that I'm just embarrassed about and I don't know what to do. And I, I just, have you ever felt like, I just hate the way I am. I'm just tired of the way I am. What I am. That load that we carry is part of our work. That carrying that load is part of our work. I think taking all this together, that actually what our work is as Christians is to take the load that we've been given and use it in love to restore one another. Take the load that we've been given and use it in love to restore those who've been caught. We see this most clearly in the life of King David in the Old Testament. We've been in Psalm 51 for off and on kind of for the last six to eight months. And you remember in there in Psalm 51 verse 13, David says, after God has poured out all this grace on him, he says, then I will, listen to this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's exactly what Paul is saying that the church is supposed to do now. I've received all this mercy and grace, and now I want to use that story to teach transgressors your ways, O God, and to see sinners return to you. And you know, that's what our friends who were sharing their testimonies last week did for us, right? That's what Amanda and Josh and Shelly did for us, right? Every single one of those testimonies had a part in it that was I think they would have said, I'm a little nervous about sharing this. This is maybe a little embarrassing. This is a little part that I don't, I don't necessarily love about my story. But what were they doing? They were giving it to us. They were saying, here's my load. I want to put it to work so that you have greater hope in Jesus. So that you know that God is loving you even in those things in your life and in those places where you don't feel his love. And so thank you, <laughs> Shelly, Josh, Amanda. Thank you for sharing that. You know, so often we think that the Christian life and being Christians and being in church is, is about trying to become the greatest chef in the world, when really what it's about is taking your five loaves and your two fish and putting it in Jesus' hands. Giving Him something to work with, and what you have to work with is whatever you got. And trust Him and He'll use it. 
I mean, the astonishing thing, friends, is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and there, there was formless and void. And the Lord said, let there be light, right? And by His Word, He created all things. But now in the new creation, you know what God is using to build the new creation? Us. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is building the beautiful new creation out of us. Is using the grace that we've been given and our humility and our hard work to build a culture of grace so that the beautiful new creation community, which is us, becomes a people, a people that those who have been caught and overburdened want to be around. Which is exactly how it was in Jesus' ministry too. Alright, so we've said that the point here is that we are to follow the Spirit into this culture of grace. So I want to encourage you now at the very end to invest in this culture of grace. I actually think that our church does a pretty good job of this, but I want to just talk about it for a moment because that's what the text is about and give you two very practical things that this is teaching for how to invest in a culture of grace. First, save today's fallen. Save today's fallen. Right? If you're wondering what the Spirit of Jesus is leading you to do, look around for those who are caught in transgressions, for those who are carrying heavy burdens, and see how you can come alongside them, put your back to the rear fender, and even though it's going to get muddy, you can push. So look for those people, approach them, appeal to them, and gently look to gently restore them. Friends, this is the only definition of spiritual. The only definition of spiritual, to test that, Paul says, is are you bearing one another's burdens? Are you fulfilling the law of Christ? So save today's fallen. And then the second thing is shorten tomorrow's work. Shorten tomorrow's fall. Shorten tomorrow's fall. Means do your work. We all have work to do. The first thing we can do is investing in a culture of grace and gentle restoration, like actually investing. Like Amanda, Josh, and Shelly did. They invested their vulnerability in it. Like Brian and Scott, Janisha, Christine, the whole team this morning did by investing their time, their energy, their anxiety into making this happen. Like we all do every Sunday, like investing your money. Invest in this. This is where the Spirit is going. Invest in a culture of grace. Because you know what? Maybe today that person needs it. But you know who might need it tomorrow? You, me, somebody that you love, somebody you love, you're going to wish they had a culture of grace to give them Jesus. So let's invest in that ahead of time. And then also with shortening tomorrow's fall is be, be honest and be humble. You know, like... How far do you have to fall before falling stops being fun? Do you remember doing this as a kid? You remember climbing up on things and jumping off of them, hitting the ground, and then there was a, it was like fun, it was like super fun, and then there's a point where you're like, nope. This stopped being fun. It was like a foot, two feet, right? At some point, falling is not fun anymore. So what can we do? Well, it seems like Paul would say, know your load. Get to know yourself. Get to know your tendencies. I think in the language of, pop, of modern pop psychology, do your work, uh, which actually sounds a little bit legalistic, but it seems like this is a little bit what Paul's encouraging us to do. Pay attention to what you're bringing and what you're carrying so you don't deceive yourself. Keep watch on yourself. And, and in all of it, remember the cross of Jesus. 
Remember the grace that you've needed. I mean, there's no, there's no version of your next week, month, year, decade where you're not going to stumble, where you're not going to trip. And you could fall. But if you stay low, right, it won't hurt so bad. If I'm up on a chair and somebody pushes me over and I fall, I get the wind knocked out of me. If I'm down in a squat position and somebody pushes me over, I don't even have to stop talking. Right? The lower we are, the less it's going to hurt. So shorten tomorrow's fall. Well, we need, we need the Holy Spirit to lead us. And now, thanks to these verses, we know where the Spirit is leading us. It's, it, the Spirit is leading us to our flourishing, but our flourishing is going to happen in the new creation that Jesus is bringing into this world through the people of Jesus. The Spirit is leading us then to one another. The Spirit is leading us to give grace and to need grace so that at least here on planet Earth, grace exists. And that's what the Spirit is doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your grace. Your grace has extended to us and has increased our gratitude. And so we thank you, Lord, for answering the prayers of, of all those in time past and in places distant. And we are the beneficiaries of their prayers and of your work. But Lord, we want more and more to see this church and, and the effect of our lives together to be extending grace to more and more people and increasing more and more gratitude for your honor and glory. And so, Spirit, we entrust this time to you. We entrust these words. We ask that you would let this dwell in us richly and that you would lead us into that beautiful new creation, into that a beautiful place of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.